Yeah, he's good. He's good? Okay, fill up with uh, nuts and snacks and wine, and we're going to start. And maybe, Chris, close the door. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, the, the chairs are differently arranged tonight. So this must mean something. And indeed it does. Um, my name is Rita Sharon, and I'm uh, 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 in charge of the program in narrative medicine. And I welcome all of you to our monthly rounds, where typically, or uh, many times, uh, we hear from writers or clinicians about the intersection between the care of the sick and attention to the stories of illness. Because we are uh, engaged in the study of narrative, we typically or often um, uh, consider the language of medicine. So if you were here last week, last month, uh, we heard Chris Adrian, a pediatrician and oncologist, reading a 45-minute long short story that he had written. And it was rather extraordinary. He gets to the end and he says, thank you, and he sits down. He was here to read us his fiction. Um, tonight is a departure. I'm very excited that we're um, open to many directions. Uh, it's a departure because we're going to be looking at pictures and we're going to be considering not only the written word, the language of illness, but a much wider kind of porous, porous um, understanding of what goes on between two persons in a relationship like a clinical relationship or a teaching relationship. Um, I'm, I'm here to introduce the introducer who will tell us why we are so excited to have David, Dr. David Spangler with us. But I will introduce Wilma Siegel. Dr. Siegel is an oncologist and a sculptor. Dr. Siegel trained at Montefiore Hospital in a time in cancer treatment when there was urgent need for what we now call hospice care, but it didn't exist, and so she created it. So Dr. Siegel is one of the um, American pioneers in the care of the dying. As a sculptor, and she's an eminent sculptor, her work shows, and um, uh, she has, from the beginning of her practice, understood the requirement for the imagination and a sense of beauty in the care of the sick. Um, Wilma has become our partner in the program in narrative medicine. Uh, <clears throat> our partner and our visionary in helping us include visual arts in the work we do. So it's with Wilma's leadership and guidance that, for example, we have hired artists to work with children 
in the pediatric oncology and pediatric neurology clinics while they're waiting for their chemotherapy or their seizure doctor. And so we've gotten, we've took a complete, you know me, I'm Henry James, I took a complete turn toward painting, sculpture, the use of visual media in expanding the work of healthcare. Uh, and Wilma is now um, my compass. And Wilma will tell us about what we're to see tonight. Well, she described my history and uh, I've always felt because I was both an artist and a physician that the art taught me so much about creativity in medicine. So she gave you the history. I was a pioneer in hospice. And also I was a pioneer in AIDS because we were in the midst of an AIDS epidemic in the 70s when it was beginning. And I noted that there was a new disease coming about. And starting with hospice, I had to accept some of these AIDS patients. So I became a member of the first AIDS team. Well, that creativity part of my brain made me think about why Rita is doing what she is doing. I went to art school and I remembered going uh, at the transition period between oncology and who I am today, which is the artist. And I noted at the um, class um, for uh, drawing that the anatomy was very similar to what happened in Renaissance times when artists and medical students worked together. And so now what Rita is offering, and which I was privileged last week to see because it's something that I gave the idea to, is that medical students are going to the Frick, to MoMA, and to the Metropolitan Museum. And they're getting increasing visual acuity by looking in a different way at the human being through what art offers. And that's what this is all about. And when I came to Rita and I said, it's not just narrative, it's visual, I was thinking of arts in healthcare. And arts in healthcare is what it's all about. It's expression and communication. And it's not just visual, it's not just narrative. There are other arts that can help us to heal people. That's why we're here. We're here to heal people and make people feel comfortable not just cure, but to give them comfort. And so David is here because of this idea that performing art is also a way to teach us and also a way to give us um, an understanding of what the human being is about and why we are here doing what we are doing. Let me tell you the story about when I first met David. I am a founding member of an organization called FAB. Sounds wonderful, FAB. And it's funding Arts Broward. And 100% of the funds that are donated are given to, for grants in Broward County because there are no monies now. And 100% of the money that I donate or anybody else donates goes to grants to all arts in the community. Um, 
David Spangler has founded an organization called Love Well, and he presented at one of the luncheons what he does. And he teaches young people to communicate together, and he actually teaches them empathy. And I thought about it, and I went up to David, and I said to David, have you ever thought of utilizing your teaching methods to medical students, to teach them empathy? So that's why he's here today. And I hope that you will get the message that there are other ways of learning, not just the logical ways, but those that are in our right brain, which are the intuitive side of our brain. We've got to strengthen that so that we can communicate better with others. So let me read David's CV. <laughs> um, he is currently the program administrator and artistic director of Nova Southeastern University, which is in Broward County. He is the interdisciplinary arts master's program. Dr. Spangler graduated with a BFA from Carnegie Mellon University and did postgraduate work at the University of Pittsburgh and Kansas State University. He received his PhD from Union Institute and University. He has worked professionally in theater, film, and television as a director, writer, composer, and performer. His Broadway credits include The Magic Show, Seesaw, and Elizabeth I. He has also written and produced 35 songs for the Emmy Award-winning Romper Room and Friends, um, CBS Fox videos, achieving gold status. Dr. Spangler is the founder and artistic director of Lovewell, Lovewell Institute for the Creative Arts. As a transdisciplinary artist, consultant, and expert on creative process, he has published articles presented at numerous national and international conferences, served in various capacities with the Miami City Ballet, uh, Walt Disney World Entertainment, the Theater League of South Florida, the Arts Advisory Committee for the Broward Public Schools, and was appointed by the Florida Secretary of State to serve as a grant panelist and evaluator for the State Division of Cultural Affairs. Dr. Spangler recently received the Joseph Levitt Award for dedication to the arts in the community. And so I'm very proud to present my friend David. Thank you, Wilma. Thanks so much. It's a, it's a real honor to be here. Um, I want to just dive right into this. I, I, I want to make the connection for all of you about how I kind of backed into this uh, little career mode that's, that's been happening lately. I, I was born and raised in Kansas. I, uh, when I was a young uh, boy, I saw Porgy and Bess at our little theater in Kansas that uh, just changed movies about every once every uh, year. <laughs> a new movie, whatever. So it blew my mind. It changed uh, my whole world. And I asked my parents, you know, where, where do they do that? How do you, where do you go to do that? Because I want to tell stories. I want to tell people stories in a way that is just um, unrelenting, you know, that is just unavoidable. And to have it go straight to the heart and to the soul and kind of bypass <clears throat> all of the intellectual analyzing, which I later got deeply into. It took me six and a half years to get my PhD. 
But um, so I kind of backed into it because then I moved to New York. I found out where you went to do that stuff. And I found, you know, I got my training first at Carnegie and, and all that. And I found that uh, I didn't like the environment. It was hostile. People were true. There's a musical. I don't Has anybody ever seen Ruthless, the musical, where the little girl actually murders another little girl to get the part? It's a, it's a comedy. <laughs> and it's a musical. It's very funny. I mean, she actually murders another little girl because she wants the part so bad. But when those people grow up with that mentality, it creates a very hostile environment. And in New York City, uh, you know, going to auditions was like, it was like going into the prison to tell them to just be nice, you know. Um, so I decided to start Lovewell Institute, where I could do the work I wanted to do. I could find out how to tell stories in an engaging way uh, without the hostile environment. And somehow, it has really blossomed into this thing. It took, it took over 20 years for it to do this, but I have grown my own staff now. I have literally, they started with me when they were 13 and 14, and now they're you know, in their early 30s or, or late 20s, and they are, they've taken over all the staff positions of our programs. So I, I think the best way to show you uh, what we do so I can dive into this connection with empathy training in the medical field is to just show you a short video, it's just four minutes, but the whole gist of Lovewell Institute is that the kids create everything. They have total ownership, they have total control of the, of the product, and well, pretty much, pretty much the process, which they're not totally aware of, but they, but they think they're in control of it, so that's a good thing. Um, and so we put them in a room together. We get in a, we're always in a big circle. We don't create the classroom thing where it's all, you know, one direction. And we have them identify what issue they, they want to learn about. And it's very interesting that I just found out that, you know, the word doctor actually means educator in Latin. So, and educare, the verb actually means to draw out of, not to fill up with. So these are inspiring kind of uh, ideas to me that, that help form what Lovewell does. So the kids come up with, in a brainstorming, guided brainstorming, they come up with the issue they want to uh, tell the story about. They come up with the characters that, that create the dialogue around that issue. And then they come up with the style or the plot, the story, that's going to hold it all together. That, little thin red line that holds it all together. So this, uh, we got a grant from the public school district. There was, uh, there's a problem, I think not just in Florida, with bullying, with people just being awful to each other. And unfortunately, administrators just turn their face away from it and they say boys will be boys or whatever and that's going to happen and you got to toughen up and learn to uh, grow up in, the, in, a, in, a, in a hostile world. Well, we think differently and it's created a lot of problems. So we got the kids all together, we got a grant, they didn't have to write on the subject but we said we're going to give you some information from the clinicians a little bit about what bullying is and how, and how destructive it is in schools and in society. And so this is, this is what they came up with. Um, I just, I, I, since, you're not, since you're only gonna see four minutes, 
we create all the music, the kids create all the lyrics, they create the dialogue and the characters. It begins, what you're going to see now is at the funeral of a boy in the dressed in white who uh, was designing costumes for the school show. And uh, so they thought he was gay, and the bullies, after a school dance, beat him up. He, he, this all comes from their, from their real stories. Um, so he went through some of this, and, and he dies in the play. You know, it's drama, so you have to have conflict. So he dies. So this is at his funeral, where he's actually experiencing his own funeral. And then the girl you see is a girl who was his best friend, who has been bullied by her father to get better grades, to achieve more, to, you know, to, to really uh, accomplish things, which she was not doing. And when the boy dies, then she overdoses on drugs. She lives, he dies. So, uh, and they created everything you're going to see here. And this will just give you an, an idea of what we do, and then we'll go deeper into it. Here we go. And we may have to adjust the sound, Ricardo. I'm going to see how it...
Okay. Um. <laughs> the girl who sang that wrote this song in 20 minutes at a school cafeteria table, no piano, no nothing. Her name is Julie Smith. She's back with us. This show is now touring the school district. Uh, we got a grant from the public school district from the Office of Prevention. This is the second year. They wrote it last year. Now we're rewriting it. This is the beautiful thing about living theater and about performances is you can constantly update it. Cyberbullying and cyber uh, predators has become even bigger issue. So we're a a adding a bunch of stuff about cyberbullying now. But it's an extraordinary uh, thing. And it is their stories. They feel much ownership over it. It's been a very successful program. I just saw this before I came. There's a, it's the title of this newspaper article is A Hug is a New Hello for Teens. The schools are becoming so uh, Concerned, the kids are hugging each other nowadays. That they're thinking about outlawing hugging <laughs> in the schools because uh, even though the kids say uh, uh, pro-hugging students say it's not romantic or sexual gesture, simply the hello of their generation. I think it's a wonderful thing. And uh, yeah, I went to a school uh, theater conference where uh, the, the representatives from Louisiana schools say that. Uh, they, the drama teachers, are not even allowed to touch to. If they're directing the show and they're doing a fight scene or something, they cannot touch their students. So the kids, I think, are rebelling and they're, they're longing for this personal human contact. So that, so this, this is kind of, I guess, how I backed into empathy training. I think that's what these kids are learning, and Wilma recognizes, and and I've been going in that direction, and so now it's it's. I'm here, so I want to be with all of you because you are in the trenches. But I do think that there is a need uh, for everybody to develop these skills. Uh, you know, empathy is not something that comes naturally to everybody, but it is something that can be taught. If you can get better at it, like anybody, some people just have the natural gift or are born that way, but other people can get better at it. And I say that to my, uh, I teach and create creative process for us. And some people think you have to be born with creativity. Everybody's born with creativity. It gets drunk out of you by a, by a lackluster uh, school system often. But it is always there, and you can be better with creativity. So, so that's the love, the love well process in a, in a little nutshell. Um, Dorita told me that I'm here to unlock empathy, and I love that. She told me that a couple of weeks ago. And that just was a, a wonderful challenge for me to just kind of bring love out of the closet. I've been told by parents who are doctors and psychologists of my students, you know, that we needed to come out of the closet with love well to just admit that we do that, uh, as well as put on these wonderful shows. So we do that, and that's part of what today is about. I don't know, how many of you saw this week's New Yorker? You did? It has this wonderful article, uh, which just came out at the right time for me because it helped me figure out what I was doing today. This is called Personal Best, and it was written by Atu Wande, wonderful writer. And the premise of this is that, you know, opera singers, I know I have friends who are opera singers, they have coaches till the day they die. They always have a coach. Athletes, till the, til the minute they quit, you know, competing and performing, 
they have potions. So Dr. Gwen is his, his uh, whole premise in here is why don't we do that? In, you know, professionals, teachers. He talks about teachers being coached. He talks about himself. He, he got an old uh, a professor of his, a surgeon, who came in, went into the uh, operating room with him, stood on a little podium with his uh, pen and, 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 and a notebook, and took notes on his surgical practice because he thought after 10 years he had peaked and he wasn't getting any better. And they followed the stats, and after he'd been coached by uh, Dr. Rothstein, I guess, Rothstein, he got better. The stats all went up after 10 years after leveling off. He actually got better. And it was things about where he was positioned and how he was sensitive and aware of the other doctors in the room and the lighting and other people so they could make, he could make their job easier. It wasn't just about him. And he really got better. So that, so I'm going to, this is just one little quote from this article. A lot of you probably already read it. But I'll go back over here so you can hear it. And I'll put on my glasses so I can actually see it. Um, it says, we care about results in sports. And if we care half as much about results in schools and in hospitals, we may reach the same conclusion. We could create coaching programs not only for surgeons, but for other doctors too. Internists aiming to sharpen their diagnostic skills, cardiologists aiming to improve their heart attack outcomes, and all of us who have to figure out ways to use our resources more efficiently. So that really gave me a, a wonderful sense of you know, being a coach today, and I'm, I'm up for it. I do it with the kids, and I can, I can uh, I can relate to that. So what I decided today to do today is take you through um, actually what I do at Lovewell. And it's worked with the, with the kids. I started with, uh, I actually started with uh, K through eight at the Hampton Day School years ago when I lived in New York. I was doing this as an experiment. I did it as a pilot program. I got a lot of support from Bank Street College educators who ran the Hampton Day School in those days. And um, it was a very successful program, so then I incorporated the not-for-profit company. And um, when I got ready to do my first workshop, I thought, oh my goodness, I've, I've never had an education course. I've never <laughs> I didn't go that way. I went full performance and, and all of that. And, uh, so I thought I need some kind of uh, ground rules. I need some kind of methodology that I can relate to and that I know will get the students engaged. So that's what I did. I came up with this, uh, these seven affirmations. Uh, I don't like the word affirmations, so I changed it to learning meditations. The kids don't like learning meditations, so they changed it back to affirmations. So, so we let them do, we let them call it whatever they want. But that's what I'd like to uh, take you through. So I'd like, you know, we do this uh, participation thing. And that's part of the reason the room is set up like this. So I would just like to have you all just stand up. Oh, they run for the door when I say audience participation. No. <laughs> it's not really audience participation. But it's, it's, it's getting yourself involved, and this is, this is so effective with the kids over the last 20 years, 
I want to do it with you. And I want you to be aware. I, I always start all my classes at the university, my master's classes, with this idea of, of uh, identifying the learning. I hope this comes over there. Yeah. All right. I would just get rid of that. Okay. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to think about these these subject areas, and I want you to identify why you're here. You'll get a lot more out of the next few minutes if you really identify what I call identify your learning. They start every class with this. So I'd like you to think. I'd like you to just loosen up, just relax. Whatever it is, you get the blood flowing. So I just want you to think about appreciation. So reach for appreciation. Think of something, just anything. One thing will do that you can appreciate. The gorgeous day today outside. Somebody that you love. Something that you're going home to tonight. Some favorite food. Something that's in the next room, like a glass of red wine that you're going to get. <laughs> something like that. Okay. Appreciation. Then I want you to reach down for compassion. I want you to think why that word was invented, why compassion is important. I want you to reach over to the side for forgiveness. Why do all religions somehow embrace forgiveness as one of the foundational steps in any religion in becoming more aware spiritually? I want you to reach over to the other side for humility. Why is humility important? Humility is important because if you think you know any, everything, there's no room for anything else to go in. So it's important for us all, no matter how many years of experience we've had, no matter how much training, no matter how many degrees and how many letters after our name, it's always important to strive for humility because it opens the door for more things so you can get better. And that's what a coach is supposed to do, make you better at your game. And humility is a very important part of that. I want you to reach down for understanding, a deeper understanding of yourself and of the world and of why things are the way they are and especially of the people you deal with, your patients, your colleagues, understanding. And then I want you to reach over to the side again for valor. Valor is a word we don't use much anymore. But valor is a beautiful concept. It's doing something for the right reasons. 
It's doing something because it's good for the world, it makes you feel better about yourself, and it's just the right thing to do. So as you're kind of stretching and reaching, I'm gonna just go over these words once more and think of opening up, think of these things, which one you identify which the most, which one you think you have to get better at in your game. Appreciation, compassion, forgiveness, humility, understanding, and valor. Just let those things roll around for a second and you can take your seat again. Thank you for being good sports and doing this all with me. This is a, the kids really like this kind of thing and it, and it, it starts, we, we do really rigorous uh, physical stuff with the kids because they need to get that energy all calmed and I'm not going to do that with you we may have to call an ambulance <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they'll be calling you yeah they'll just your buzzer your beepers will be going up okay so um, so that's the first thing we do then we get into uh, we, we get quiet we lower the lights and I and I take the students Every day we do this, every single day. And it was a real risk at the beginning when I started doing this because I thought kids will think it's corny or it's like, you know, crazy. They love it. They take these affirmations home with them. They put them on their bathroom mirror. They put them on their bed so they can see it. They put them on their family bulletin board. And the first one is, and if you want to say it after I say it, I mean, I'm not... You know, these are not things you are supposed to believe in. It's not a religion. It's just, these are portals. I've come to recognize these as portals that open up creativity. So the first one is, within me, there is boundless creative power. Within me, there is boundless creative power. This is an important statement because, first of all, because it, because it focuses you, the first words are within me. So we're not looking out there for something that we're grasping at that's beyond our reach or something from the outside world. It, it comes from within us. Creativity comes from going in. Um, the idea of boundlessness is a, is a uh, kind of a mind-boggling idea to young people because they have very little sense of infinity and eternity. But I think it's one of the things that ties us all together. I think it's what ties art and science and religion together. Is that we're all striving to, to better understand and better explain infinity and eternity. So I try to get these young minds to think about the boundlessness of creative power. It, it knows no end. It's a quantum concept. And uh, like I say, everybody has it. And you can get better at it. And uh, I got some of these ideas from the life and teachings of the Masters of the Far East. Uh, Baron Spaulding, uh, had a, it's a five volume set. They're not big volumes, but they're very powerful. When I was in my 20s, living in New York, uh, wanting to really relate to my first students when I was starting this thing, I, uh, 
I came up with the concept for this from that. So, um, within me there is boundless creative power. It's just, it's a statement. It's a portal. You can believe as much of that as you as as you're capable of. It does get better. It's like exercising a muscle. And if you think about it, you know, as a man thinketh, you 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 uh, you get better at it. Um, I usually ask if there's any questions after each one of these, but I'm not going to do that. I'll ask it at the end. But just remember, if you have any questions about any of this stuff and, and the kind of this methodology, this little technique that we use, just please uh, remember to ask it at the end. Number two is I am now at this moment all that I need to be. I am now at this moment all that I need to be. Now, this is an interesting uh, concept uh, for a coach to be talking about because it, it might imply to you that there's nowhere to go or nothing better uh, that you can do or achieve. That's not necessarily the truth. In a, in a room full of teenagers who are concerned about you know, their weights and, and acne and uh, how their hair looks and a number of other other considerations, it can ruin their whole day. Um, Ricardo, could we turn could we turn down the volume a little bit over here? It's it's ringing. It's making me look crazy. So, how many of you have heard of the uh, of the new theories of coherence? All the stuff that's coming out lately about coherence. You have yes. Good. Cohere I have all, I have pages and pages I've been reading. I, about a year ago I got interested in coherence because I have a hunch it's the way that the scientific community is approaching the concept of love. They, don't, they can't call it love, of course. But they call it coherence. And there's all kinds of charts and graphs and neuroscience is really into this now, as you must know. And um, I just wanted to read you a little quote about this also. This is actually, I believe, by an MD, but here it says, there is, an, there is abundant evidence that emotions alter the activity of the body's physiological systems, and that beyond their pleasant subjective feeling, heartfelt positive emotions and attitudes provide a number of benefits that enhance physiological, psychological, and social functioning. As coherence tends to naturally emerge with the activation of heartfelt positive emotions such as appreciation, compassion, care, and love, it suggests that such feelings increase the coherence and harmony in our energetic systems which are the primary drivers of our physiological systems. This increased coherence and alignment in turn facilitate the body's natural regenerative process. In this context, the term energetic system refers to the functions we cannot directly measure, touch, or see, such as our emotions, thoughts, and intuitions. So, you know, you are what you are in this room. You, you have become what you have become. Uh, largely through science, and I understand that. It, that's the way, that's the 
gateway. But it's now essential, I think, for everybody. I, I, I deal a lot in the educational community. It's very essential there. And I think in the healthcare industry, to begin to open up to things that you can't see and things that we can't measure and know that eventually science will catch up with that. It's happening very quickly now. And like I say, uh, neuroscience, uh, there, there's a, the uh, Dana Foundation and Johns Hopkins University is really deep into studying with education, this new thing called neuroeducation where they can actually you know, monitor the brain and, and the activity in the brain when you're doing different uh, tasks. And the, the task that fires up more, what are the synapses in the brain, that the, has more brain activity than any other activity, is music. A, mu a person playing music, and not written music necessarily, but kind of jazz or improvisation or something that they have to be thinking about not just reading the notes, but also creating the, the music and the notes. So that, uh, that's kind of a beautiful concept. But this affirmation or this learning meditation is about us being comfortable with who we are at the moment and realizing that if we have a task at hand, that we've got to do that. It is performance, as Wilma always says. You know, if you're a doctor or a nurse or, or whatever, and, and, and it's that moment of truth, you don't have time to acquire any more stuff, any more knowledge, any more tools, any more instruments. You've got to be there with what you've got, and you've got to know that it's enough, totally enough to do your job and to do it well. So it's trusting. It, it has to do with, a, with an inner trust of ourselves. And this is especially effective with kids, but I found it's also effective with adults. We've started doing intergenerational programs now, and the, and the Lovewell method has kind of reached out beyond the original target age group that I had. So um, if you have questions about that, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, number three, I visualize perfection daily until I breathe it into expression. I visualize perfection daily until I breathe it into expression. So the, the wonderful thing about this is I mean, perfection is a difficult word. And I always have to explain to the people in these workshops that perfection is not, again, it's not from the outside. It's nobody's idea of what you should be. It's only your own idea of your own perfection, and you're the only one who knows that. We only can know that about ourselves. No one can have an expectation of their child. You know what that does to children. It often wrecks their lives <laughs> at worst, and at best it gives them um, unrealistic expectations of themselves that they don't fit into, and they might spend half their lifetime trying to please their parents and find out that uh, Later on, that's not who they are. So, so this is a, you know, this is a very important uh, affirmation or whatever you want to call it, because breathing, to me, the process of breathing is a uh, is a metaphor. I deal in the world of playwriting and lyrics and and storytelling, so everything is a metaphor. And the beautiful metaphor about the, the simple breathing process, and the kids all get this. 
They all have had enough science in, in their school to know that you, know, you breathe in a substance, you breathe in the oxygen, it goes in, it gets transformed, carbon dioxide. You breathe it out, all the plants, all, they all need that, what you've got, you all need what they got. So it's this beautiful natural synergy that explains the reason and the process of art making, of creativity. So I tell all my young artists that this is a key to creativity that never leaves you. It's a metaphor that as long as you're alive, as long as you're breathing, you can tap into that. And it's a constant reminder that you breathe in the world around you, and now I'm saying this from the world of art, you breathe in all the craziness that's in the world, within your family, in your own gene pool, in your own um, experience, and the media, in the world, in schools and teachers, and, and the whole world around you. You breathe that in, you put your imprimatur on it, you put your own signature on it, and you breathe it out as a whole different thing. And the world needs your expression. I mean, it is, we talk about expressive arts, expressive arts therapy. We talk about artists expressing their experience of the world. And that means to breathe out. So I just love this, that you, know, you can't escape this constant reminder of the process of living and being a creative person. And I love that, and that works really well uh, with, with the students. Um, this also brings to mind a, a subject that I like a lot, but I'm not going to get deeply into today because we're on a time schedule. I don't want to keep you long here. But I, I see this as a new model for uh, just being and of the way we perceive ourselves as we kind of move from the old model of evolution saviorship. There's this old model of evolution that things have to take their time and, you know, Lamarck and Darwin and all that and things just evolve and that there's always something outside of us that's affecting how we change and there's something that is going to save us. This whole concept of saviorship, that something out there is going to make some new drug or some new something is going to make everything better. Well, the new model is called transformation mastership. And it's, and it's the, the, the concept, it's a, again a quantum concept, that something can transform like that. It doesn't have to go through years or hundreds of years of evolution. There are those transformational events in our lives where an instant completely can change your life. An epiphany, a thought, an event. You're different. It didn't take any time for this transformation. You know, it's Paul on the road to Damascus. It's like these things happen suddenly, and they can, and they do, and they will. And the more you're aware of that, moving out of this old model from evolution saviorship into transformation mastership, where you become the master of your own life. Therefore, we eliminate, slowly eliminate this whole victimhood thing, the whole thing of, I mean, you know how fond, you know much better than I do, how fond people get of their, wound, of their wounds and their woundedness. 
And as healers, you all know that that's what sometimes keeps them from healing, is their own attachment to just being a victim and to be wounded, being wounded. And that's very hard to let go. And there's no drug, no surgery that's going to cut that out or eliminate that. That's something that they have to come at from another angle, psychologically or spiritually or something, whatever it takes. But I love this affirmation because it, it, it leads us into that new model. So I visualize perfection daily until I breathe it into expression. Let's just take a big breath and think about that. Breathe it all in. Know that it's yours. You make it yours, uniquely yours, and then you breathe it out to the world. Okay. Number four. Uh, this is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, I am pure energy and awareness. Simple. I am pure energy and awareness. You've probably all heard the story of the 90-pound lady who, you know, had a car wreck and her son was pinned under the car and she actually picked up the car and, I mean, that kind of stuff happens. And, uh, you know, call it a miracle, call it superhuman strength, call it a mother's love, whatever it is. Those things do happen and we can reach down and conjure that. I've seen my wife do it in her, in her mothering uh, kind of thing. When she was eight months pregnant, we didn't have a place to live and uh, we moved from New York because we didn't, we decided we really was going to be too difficult to raise our family in New York. So we moved down to Florida. We didn't have a house. The one we thought we were going to have fell through. She's eight months pregnant. She conjured up the perfect house for us, the perfect real estate agent. We had that house in a day at the right price. I never could have done that. I was like pouring through the yellow pages in the newspapers and she's like, oh, I'm just like, so that is pure energy and awareness. It's particularly effective with, with actors and writers because awareness is something you can really get better at. It's really easy and you can see instant results. When you can take your focus out of your own little world, this own little cocoon that we live in a lot, of, a lot, a lot, and you start being aware of people and things around you, you, less accidents happen. You get into less trouble. You get more fulfillment and more, it's a richer experience if we, if we work on those, here, here's the coach again, if we work on those awareness muscles. And this concept that there is something out there bigger than the body. The body is an expression of something bigger than itself. And it gets into quantum again because it is energy and energy cannot be destroyed, as you know. Energy just changes forms, but you cannot destroy it. It's always there and if we learn to tap into it, we can get better at it. It doesn't matter what age, doesn't matter what level of education, it's just an awareness, and an awareness of that energy. So, um, I just want to show you this. We did a, uh, we've done over a hundred productions now, original productions by young people, and we have a very active program in Sweden and uh, we did this thing in August called Layers of Leo. 
It's the first time that in 20 years the kids in Lovewell have actually chosen a true story of uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Because at Lovewell, they, get, they, they become very proud of their ability to create and to be creative artists. So they identified Leonardo da Vinci as one of the greatest creative minds that ever lived. Well, I'm always talking about Leonardo in my master's classes because you know, he's the perfect example of the Renaissance, of the, of the scientist who knew there was no barrier between art and science. For him, it was all the same. It was just solving problems. And uh, what time is it? I, okay. Yeah, yeah, so I'll speed it up here. Uh, we don't have time to show you, but they wrote a song. There's actually a scene in the show that we did this summer where he is where Leonardo is on stage cutting open cadavers. I mean, they're dancers. <laughs> so, but he's, he's, got the, he's got the knife and he picks it up and he opens a person and he looks inside and then they go into all the beautiful thing, you know, the Vitruvian man, the Leonardo thing, it's, I mean, it's a symbol from the health industry. So they have this beautiful song called We Are Golden that they sing about the discoveries that he made and that, I mean, it became the, the, you know, anatomy. It became the source of all the information we had at that age about anatomy. And it also became the source of the beautiful paintings he did, the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper, why those people all looked so real. So it improved his art. I mean, Wilma, I'm sure, could, could teach the, a whole course in this thing that I'm talking about. But anyway, it was very rewarding to see the kids discover this and be aware of it, and then put it up on stage, write a song about it, write a whole show about it. It was called The Layers of Leo. It was about Leonardo seen through uh, a bunch of different uh, Mona Lisas because they, in their research, they discovered the Mona Lisa had been painted over like 18 times because there's 18 layers of different uh, paint on So anyway, all right, speeding up, here we go. Uh, the next one is All My Needs Will Always Be Supplied by my understanding of creativity. All my needs will always be supplied by my understanding of creativity. I'd like to just do a short thing. Could I have two people come up here? Just two, uh, uh, yeah. I'm not gonna make a fool of anybody. I'm, I'm the only fool here, so let me have that. Okay, I'm gonna give you an example. This is Just shifting the aspect. 
Say it loud. Say it loud. Yeah. Different direction. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. policy-driven at Lovewell Institute, and this is, <laughs> this is our one and only really important policy. It's the only policy for 20 years that we've stuck to, and by sticking to it, we haven't needed a lot of other policies, but here it goes. I think a kind thought for everyone, may we create today in the spirit of cooperation and joy. I think a kind thought for everyone. May we create today in the spirit of cooperation and joy. So this is what we like to call collaboration. This is why I love making stories with people now at Lovewell. Not like I used to like uh, be challenged by it in New York where it was just a ruthless competition. And, uh, it, you know, so that's the whole difference. And it's, it has what I, I understand, uh, Wilma told me that you call it teamwork. In the theater, we kind of call it collaboration, but it is, it is teamwork. And we have a lot of success with this. And we'll get into the day, you know, the day before the show opens, and we know that all these audience members are coming, and we only came up with the idea for the whole thing two, three weeks ago and there's gonna be maybe several hundred people out there and they're paying to see it and everybody gets tense and you start going back into those bad habits of being nasty and demanding. Somebody will yell, number six! <laughs> and everybody just snaps right back into uh, the right attitude and it happens. So I think a kind thought for everyone, may we create today in the spirit of cooperation and joy. And it's very important to know that we're not asking the impossible. We're not asking people to love each other. We're not, uh, you know, love is not an emotion. Love is, 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 love is the perceiver of the emotion, but love is the pervasive thing that's always there. We just either can perceive it or we don't in different situations. So we leave that up to the, the people. We just ask them to have a good day together and to work together effectively. So that's nice. So now the last one, when I was asking uh, Rita what, what I should be doing here, um, this is, and I told her kind of what I would like to do, which is follow these seven learning meditations. This is the one she said, well, you should do the whole one on this, on just this one. So maybe that's what I should have done. It would have, it would have been shorter. But 
So the last one is, now let me in silence reaffirm why I am here. Now let me in silence reaffirm why I am here. This is so powerful, and what, what I tell the young people I work with, I say it doesn't have to be, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what the why I am here is. And it can be different tomorrow when we go through this exercise than it was today. That's fine. But in a scientific study of people over 100 years old, they found out one of the things they all have in common is that they know why they're here. They know why they get up in the morning. If it's to take care of a grandchild, if it's to get that little glass of whiskey at the end of the day, I mean, they've, you know, it's whatever it is, it, it's working for these people. So um, I would think in your profession, when you're, when you're constantly under pressure and it's life and death situations, that it would be an important thing to kind of ask yourself. You probably already do this. I'm probably not telling you anything, but I'm just, I'm just your coach and I'm just reminding you that if you really start to get out of sorts and kind of lose your center, this might be a good thing to say, you know. Now, just take a moment of silence, get centered and say, now why am I here? If you're here to heal the sick, if you're here to comfort somebody, if you're here to make money, that's all okay. That's just fine. Just remind yourself of that. So, that's... I. Do I have time to just show one last uh, short little thing? I just wanted to show you uh, uh, what, what it comes to. This is another song that the kids wrote. It's only three minutes, and we'll just end with that. It's a song that the kids wrote uh, from a show that was about the environment. And uh, i got to get to YouTube here. Um, all the animal kingdom on earth puts the human race on trial. And they try them for doing the awful things that we have done to the world, to Mother Nature. And this is the song that they wrote about how they finally decide that the humans can go on. I mean, you know the scientific thing that if humans were eliminated from the earth that everything would get better. But if you eliminated even one of the species, then everything gets worse. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a joke nowadays, but it's... So, this is a piece called Dreams. Um, and Imagination. And it's just a very uplifting... Now you can see how slow I spell and type. That's okay. Uh, so this is uh, just kind of the, the statement of Lovewell, as, of, of the, the empathy training that is really, really fun to do. And this was uh, what they came up with at the end of the trial when they decided they were going to let the human race have another chance. They needed to learn more about dreaming, and the dreaming dreams was good, and that having imagination was essential for the future of the planet. That's the next generation love book, yeah. I've just got to turn up the volume here a little bit.
Okay, here we go. Kids. Those are three sisters from Sweden. This is the girl who wrote most of the song herself in Sweden. So that's it. Uh, if you have any questions, you know, if we have any time for any questions, then yes. Could you say a little something about the intergenerational aspect of what you do? Yeah, we discovered that uh, grandparents and parents who came to these productions were saying, why didn't this exist when I was young? Well, I started it because it didn't exist when I was a kid. And I was isolated out of Kansas in the farm community. My brother and my dad were big athletes, and I wanted to do this. I wanted to do this. So, so we decided to listen to the heat the call and start doing things. So we bring families together. And whoever's willing to play the game, to spend the day at a 
uh, raped a, a, a boy and sexually mutilated him. Every reason to hate this guy. Every reason to hate this guy. And his spiritual thing was telling him, but you have to learn to have compassion and understanding for someone who does this, even if it was a horrible thing they did, and just trust that there's some karmic wheel spinning that is going to give them the lesson that you may not be able to give them, but you can give them the health or whatever. You can give them the opportunity by just helping them get up and out of the hospital where they can learn that lesson. Or maybe not, but, but you have given them the opportunity to go out and keep trying. And that is the compassion and the empathy. That is the compassion. So, yeah. Yes. Thank you for your loving insights. Tomorrow, uh, I have to present at a state medical society that talked on, on triage and rationing. And it becomes that issue of me versus the group utilitarianism versus me. And in reading an article, it said, use the word solidarity. And I, I don't know how that resonates with you, but it was beautiful. I mean, it was a beautiful way of kind of thinking all this together. What would you comment on that? I, I love that. I love the word solidarity. It's a, it kind of, it kind of is a historical term that's worked in certain contexts. But I think it's the coherence thing. I think if you go on the Google coherence, it's going to help you get to this. I can't thing. use that too <laughs> But coherence is coherence is kind of like the new solidarity. Systems engineering talking to doctors, and he said we need a bilingual language. I would suggest we need a trilingual language, and maybe coherence is the thing that's the catalyst. I think so. Between this systems engineering efficiency and the individual relationship. Yes. And, and it goes back to what, what, what we talked about before this uh, sacredship, the evolution sacredship is becoming the new. Paradigm is the mastership and the transformation, and I think you know I think that it's, it's this bilingual thing that we need is to make what is happening to the patient or the person you're caring for understand what is happening to them in their terms. Don't make them come to you. It took years of your life to learn all these terms, but it means nothing to them. Wilma was just, we talked about this before the meeting just now. And Somebody just gave $42 million in Chicago to teach doctor patient relations. Right. 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 Right.
what they said was it. I mean, you, you, you built your home. My grandmother, I mean, and my grandfather was trying to keep her alive as long as he could. Lived her whole life around doctors. You know, she was a mayor of Flint and Halstead. And it was, you know, and the trouble was that the gods were fighting. Because <laughs> they wouldn't tell her the same thing. He would give her a different medication. Until my grandmother was so confused with like 50 medications on the night stand that he just threw them all out one day. He literally, he just threw them all out. And she, you know, lived as long as she could without them. But it was not helping.
school. I mean, I, I spent it all over the university. I, I made copies and spent it all over the university. Did anybody even listen? But I think the important thing about that, and the important thing when I teach quantum in my creative process, you know, I, I wasn't a whiz in science, but I know that quantum can be re related to any field. And I think this is the most important lesson in living in the quantum age. You know, quantum's been around for quite a while now, 50, 60 years, this concept. But the most important thing on that and the most relevant to the medical field, I believe, is that it's proven that, lesson, that there's no such thing as true objectivity. No, it just doesn't exist. There's no such thing as taking yourself out of the research. The hardest part of that six and a half years of my PhD was convincing my doctoral committee that I needed to be part of my research. So I got into autoethnography and all of that, and I convinced them. And they let me enter my own research as long as I justified it and acknowledged it and whatever. So, well, thank you.